Okay, uh, do you guys remember the movie The Truman Show? Anybody remember this one? Okay. So Jim Carrey in this show plays Truman Burbank, who thinks that he's living a normal old life, right? Uh, but the truth is that his entire world, everywhere he's ever been, everyone he's ever met, is part of a massive TV set that they built somewhere in California, okay? And uh, he's the main character of a TV show. And, and from the day he was born, every single second of his life, 24-7, has been uh, put on video on big screens, and people have watched his entire life uh, as he has grown up and into adulthood. Um, everyone from his wife to his best friend are actually actors. The town, the homes, the stores, his job, this, even the sky that he sees every day is all part of a set. All right. Now, he, he thinks all that he sees and smells and hears and experiences and touches in this world is the full story of his life. But of course, there's a whole nother story. And it's just outside, just beyond the boundary of what he sees and experiences every day. But the funny thing about Truman's world inside the show is that things start happening that can't be explained simply from the world he can see and taste and touch and smell, okay? The, the, the outside world sort of interacts with his world in ways that make it weird. So his wife, who is eternally chirpy, right, and like weirdly happy all the time, is always within reach of products that she's picking up and suggesting that Truman try with the label showing clearly on the outside, right? This doesn't make any sense unless there are other people looking in on the story, too. One day, a big set light falls out of the sky and lands on the street right in front of them, and they cover it up by saying there was some plane accident or something. But uh, these little pieces don't all add up. One day, the radio skits is out, and he actually hears in his car the set crew talking about his show and his life as he's going through it, and it clicks off really quickly. But these things begin to pile up. How does he make sense of all this little stuff that's start, starting to happen, the way this outside world is interacting with his world? And he begins to ask himself questions like this. Wait a minute. Is there something going on here that I don't know about? Is there another layer to my whole life that explains some of the weirdness that's happening here? Uh, because what I can see and feel and hear and touch doesn't explain everything that happens in my world. And so the rest of the movie is a story about Truman slowly but surely discovering the world he thought made up the entirety of his life was only part of the story, okay? That just beyond the curtain he hasn't seen around yet is a whole nother world. And that world interacts with his world, yet remains hidden to him. But nonetheless, it begins to make sense of some unexplainable things in his own life. You ever get the feeling that that is true of your life as well? Not the part about you being the star of a secret TV show, right? That, that's, a condition, that's a condition called narcissism, and we'll get to that in a different sermon. But I'm talking about this idea that the world as we perceive it can't really make sense of everything that we experience in our lives. That, that there has to be another layer, so to speak, that we're missing to account for certain things about life. Okay, for example, do you ever think that, do you ever think things like this? You know, it really shouldn't be this hard to fill in the blank, whatever it is, raise kids, okay? Uh, get projects through at work, keep our bodies healthy. I mean, in marriage, why is it that two people 
who truly love each other and have committed their lives to one another, who actually enjoy being around each other most of the time, um, why is it that those two people also drive each other crazy the rest of the time, right? Why do we get so frustrated, angry, selfish, even mean to the one that we love the most? I mean, on paper, marriage is very simple, right? Pick someone, tell them you love them, and do that until you die, okay? That's it. Let's, let's go do that. But in the real world, it's anything but simple. It's chaotic, right? Why? Is there something else going on here that might explain some of this weirdness? Or why is it that we continue to do things that we know are destructive to ourselves and to other people? I mean, why is killing a habit of sin uh, or a pattern of behavior so stinking hard in this world? Why can't we just say to ourselves, stop lusting, stop caring so much what other people think about us, stop performing for our acceptance and love, and then we just stop? Why can't we just tell ourselves to stop a habit? Why do we go back to the same empty wells over and over again, even though we've been there and we know that there's no water there, there's no joy, there's no satisfaction? What else could account for this? Um, What else could be going on here? And it's not even uh, trying to stop bad habits, right? It's trying to start good ones, too. I mean, here's another example. God asks us to pray, all right? Now, personally, when I actually do it, when I actually sit down and pray, I I almost always enjoy it. I'm always glad I've done it. Um, I enjoy praying. Um, I know it's good for me. And in my case, this is a little unique to me, but I'm a pastor, so it's literally my job to do this, to sit down and to pray for you all. Um, Why, though, do we find it so hard to establish new habits of prayer and and to do it, to be disciplined in it regularly? Why do our minds wander more aggressively when we pray than when we do almost anything else in life? What else could be going on here that we can't see that might explain some of this? It's almost like there's a conspiracy against people with good intentions doing good things in the world. And in our passage that we're going to look at this morning, it's actually very helpful and very revealing because it tells us it's not like there's a conspiracy against good things in the world. There is literally a conspiracy against good people doing good things in God's world, against God's kingdom expanding and extending, against what he has designed for our good. We're in a sermon series in the book of Daniel. He's an Old Testament prophet who lived a whole lifetime of faith, following God in a foreign land, a place that wasn't his spiritual home. And it was a place that was filled with pressure to sort of be anything else except a faithful follower of God. It was a place that was secular, it was pluralistic, it was spiritually distracting, it was even hostile at times. In other words, He lived where you live today, okay? Different millennium, different side of the ocean, but the same forces that made it hard for him to follow God in the world are at work in our world today, making it hard for us to follow God as well. And the book of Daniel then, as we've marched through it, we've seen it's sort of like this field manual. It's this guide for following Jesus in the world today. It's a map and a compass to point us towards a life, not just of surviving, right? Not just like hunker down, stay out of the way, make sure we get get a couple Christian friends and then don't interact with anybody else and make it through. We're not just surviving, but actually spiritually thriving 
in a place that's not our spiritual home, experiencing and enjoying God's love, living with zeal and passion for serving those around us and extending the gifts of the gospel and the hope of salvation. So that's what the book's about. And as we get closer to the end of this fascinating book, here in chapter 10, we actually are going to start, we're going to jump into what's the final vision in Daniel. It's the longest one. It spans from chapters 10 to 12. And chapter 10 is actually just the setup for the vision, the introduction. But even the introduction here is a gift. It's a gift for those of us like Daniel trying to make sense of why in the world it's so hard to follow Jesus sometimes. I mean, what, is there something else going on here? Why is it so hard for us to just do what we kind of want to do anyway? Here in chapter 10, God pulls back the curtain that normally separates the world we can see from the reality of the spiritual world we can't. And we get a glimpse into the bigger picture, the, the full story. So as we read this, be asking yourself, how is this peek behind the curtain helpful for people like us, struggling to trust and believe and follow Jesus in a spiritually distracting, spiritually chaotic world? What's the gift here for us today? Um, we're going to read selections from uh, Daniel 10. Uh, it'll be up on the screen behind me if you'd like to follow along, if you're kind of like a paper book person like I am. Um, there's pew Bibles in the seat in front of you, and you can follow. Daniel 10 is on page 748 in the pew Bible. We're going to pick up in Daniel 10, verse 5. I, Daniel, lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Jump to verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me and, I, and set me trembling on my hands and my knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understanding and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I've come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision uh, is for days yet to come. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And then verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And, and I said, let my Lord speak for you've strengthened me. And he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except Michael, your prince. This is the word of the Lord. And what in the world is going on here? Okay. This passage begins with the vision of an angel. 
this angel, he, he has God-like qualities. The, the description of him in verses 5 and 6, a lot of that exact same imagery is picked up and in the beginning pages of the book of Revelation is applied to Christ. Okay, So he, he kind of represents God, but he's also not God because he clearly needs help fighting some battle and God never needs help fighting his battle. So who is this being? Well, this is an angel. This is an angel sent to encourage and minister and be with Daniel in his time of difficulty. Angels in the Bible are fascinating creatures. Often they're mistaken for people. Um, They uh, look like us, but they're kind of more than us. They're more impressive than us. Um, Man, I hate to pop this bubble for you guys. I really do. But they're never described as having wings. No wings on angels. I'm sorry. Uh, No wings. We know that because they oftentimes get mistaken for people. And you don't have wings. They don't have wings. Sorry about that. This is what they are. Angels are ambassadors from heaven. They're, They're emissaries. Since we can't go to God's throne room, God sends people from his throne room to us with messages uh, of encouragement. So for example, Mary saw an angel and the announcement was, you are carrying a child who will be the savior of the world. Or or they come on missions. For example, Peter is stuck in prison and an angel breaks him out and he walks through town a free man. No one has ever, um, no one is ever commanded to go looking for angels. Uh, They call you, you don't call them, okay? Uh, But maybe they have already been sent to you at some point in your life without you even knowing about it. Uh, Everyone in the Bible who meets one is terrified by them. Poor Daniel here, he can't even stand up. Angels are God's emissaries, his ambassadors. They are sent on his missions into the world. So an angel arrives to Daniel with a message. But then we're also introduced to a character called the Prince of Persia who opposes and fights against God's angel. And this character seems to be a powerful, evil spirit that works in in a unique way somehow through this area, the kingdom of Persia, and is opposed to God's plans and purposes to bring harm to God's people. Now in scripture, these these characters, these evil forces, they're called demons and they're they're the reverse of angels, right? They're spiritual beings who at one point served God but have since rebelled against him um, and, and work against his purposes and his goodness in the world. The, the chief demon is, goes by a number of names in the Bible. The devil, the slanderer, the liar, uh, the tempter. Satan is called the adversary because he and the spiritual forces he commands are not actually for anything. They're just anti-everything. Okay? They can't create, make anything good on their own. They can only twist and distort what God has made. They work through lies to destroy whatever good thing they can get their hands on. And the picture that emerges here in Daniel 10 is that this angel was sent to give Daniel a message, but to get there, he had to fight with a demon he couldn't, and he couldn't make it through alone. Okay? So he called back to base, and they sent the special ops Navy SEAL warrior angel, a guy named Michael, who helped him break through and deliver his message, the end. Okay? I hope you're all encouraged. Let's go. Okay, all things considered, I'm like a pretty normal guy. Again, all things considered, I like watching the NBA playoffs. Yesterday, I went on a bike ride, and I cleaned my garage. We don't make our own clothes, okay? Um, 
And I also don't naturally enjoy standing up in front of other normal people, all things considered, talking about spiritual warfare, right? I mean, this stuff, like, you just read it. This stuff is odd. This stuff is weird. Um, what is going on here, and what are we supposed to do with it? Uh, because in the same Bible where Jesus says, this new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, right? Like a totally normal and encouraging thing to say. The same Bible also says that because of one person's private prayer life, an angel was mobilized from heaven, was delayed in coming to help him because he had to fight a demon for exactly 21 days and break through enemy lines, and that that same sort of spiritual conflict is happening right now in a world that we can't see, that's just beyond the curtain of what we can feel and touch and taste and smell. What are we supposed to do with this? Okay, This is out there, but it's actually right here in the Bible. This peek behind the curtain was given as a gift to Daniel. What kind of gift is this? A gift to you. What are we supposed to do with this presence? Um, how does this help us trust and delight in Jesus in our spiritually distracted valley, our spiritually wandering hearts? Two things in the time we have left that can... That, um, that I want to point out to you. And, and both of them can be summed up in, in what the angel gives, says to Daniel. Um, the, the angel comes with a message, but he also gives two commands, okay? Two instructions. And the first is here in verse 11, when, Dan, when he says, O Daniel, a man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, okay? One thing we need to do in light of passages like this is hear again the reassurance that we're loved and then to work to understand what is going on here, okay? To understand, to wake up to sort of the full reality, the bigger picture, the whole story, that, um, that there is a spiritual reality and there's a spiritual battle out there in the world. There are forces working against God's good world and actively working against you and I as we try to follow him through this world. Do you understand this? The angel asks us to understand this. Do you understand this? Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I'll admit it does not feel like a war zone when I get my cup of coffee and get in my car and drive to the office in the morning. We live in a beautiful place. It's green. It's summer. It's lovely here. I, there aren't missiles flying over the top of my car, but the Bible says we live in a conflict zone, okay? That we live in a spiritual conflict zone. And until we understand that's where we live, our lives aren't going to make enough sense. We're going to get hit by spiritual bullets and not even realize we're in a battle to start with. Um, do you understand that when the conflicts come up in your marriage um, and we begin to entrench ourselves again in the same places that we always entrench ourselves and we, we enter again the same habits of selfishness and start to defend the same rights that we always defend, that there's more than going on here than just two broken people trying to live together. I mean, that's true, but it's amplified and it's pressurized by the, the reality of the spiritual battle that we live in. 
It's not just two people forgetting vows that they said a year ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. There are invisible forces in our world that don't want our marriages to work. Why? Because marriage is good. It's a gift. God created it. And th these, these forces are out to just twist anything good. Through lies, he encourages selfishness. He will blind us to our own sin. He'll highlight the sins of other people and, and minimize the sins in our own heart. Um, these tendencies already exist, but, but they're amplified. We, um, Satan can't create anything. He can only twist what already exists and try to ruin it. And that's exactly, um, I, I'm sorry, that, and that makes sense, I think, of so much of our experience in the world. In the same way, do you understand that when you're trying to kind of stop a bad habit, stop a sinful habit. It's not just you and your neuropathways that you're trying to reformat, right? There's also another spiritual reality, and Satan is trying to dump a bucket of water on the embers that you're trying to get to grow. There's more going on here than you and I can, you and I can see and taste and touch and smell. I don't know how it all works, but I do know that these forces are at work. And I think that there's something about just understanding this, just sort of like naming it, even though it's strange, even though it's odd, even though it doesn't feel like it, just naming it is refreshing. Oh, well, maybe that makes so much more sense of some of the weirdness that I experience in life. And, and also it's reorienting. It helps us sort of know what to do, know how to live. Uh, Paul, and again, in this famous passage in Ephesians 6, he outlines the, the armor that we need to live in this conflict zone. I won't read the whole thing, but listen to the end. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication. What is his advice for living in a spiritual war zone? Here's his advice. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on the hero and the champion who is going to win this battle for you, in fact, who already has. Uh, open his word. Consider his salvation. Put on that helmet, like, he, like I put on my hat to protect me from the sun. Put on the helmet of salvation and remind yourself of the promises of the gospel every day when you walk outside. And pray for his people, pray for his protection, and pray for his joy. I mean, Daniel prayed and angels went to war, right? Uh, like, we're not messing around here. Daniel just got on his knees quietly in front of his window, and heaven mobilized an army to come and give him encouragement, and, and his people uh, support, and his people care and love. Um, as we look to Jesus, our Savior, our protector, our King, our friend, as we seek him in prayer and scripture, God actually uses humble little people uh, in his kingdom to move in powerful ways that we probably won't even know how we, how we do it, how, how our prayers interact with God's kingdom. And he encourages our hearts that we have nothing to fear. And of course, that's the second thing and our last thing that the angel tells Daniel. In verse 12, he says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you've set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. Fear not. Sometimes when I start to think about this stuff, which admittedly is not very often, the image that comes to my mind is I'm just standing on the sidelines watching Transformers fight. You know, it's like, what? 
there is this battle going on that I have no part of and I have nothing to do with. And if I even tried to attempt to in engage in it, I'm just going to get stepped on, right? It's like I'm going to be useless and I'm going to get hurt. It's like me watching a Transformers battle. But, but this angel comes to Daniel and then the word over and over again encourages us, do not fear. Do not live in a world of fear. Yes, there's a whole other world out there that you cannot see and taste and touch and smell. And yes, it interacts with our world. And yes, we have enemies we cannot see, but do not fear it. Why? Here's why. Colossians 2, God made you alive together with Christ, forgiving all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. If you've been in church at all, you know, you've heard that Jesus can forgive your sins. Have you also heard that Jesus will and already has fight? He, he will fight every battle for you, that, that any danger, any enemy, any um, evil force, any spiritual, something you can see, something you can't see, he will fight your battles for you, and he has already triumphed in them on the cross. And in his resurrection, it, he, he is our champion, he's our general, he's our hero, and he will defeat all the enemies that we can't even enter into with because they're so big and scary. But because of the cross, we can pray and we can trust that Jesus will not only fight the battles that we can see, but the ones that we can't see. And he'll not only fight the ones that are in the past, but the ones in the future that he holistically holds us in his love and in his safety and in his protection and in his warmth and in his kindness and that he will usher us into heaven and he will make all things right. It's a bit mysterious. It's a bit odd. Frankly, it's a bit scary. But ultimately, the good news here is that whatever's out there and whatever they want to do, all of it falls under the sovereign and loving care of King Jesus. That, that God cares for his children, that he's our protector, our champion, and, and that we fight a defeated enemy through our prayers and through our trust in Jesus. So take that helmet of salvation and put it on every day as a gift. Grab hold of that sword of the spirit. The word of God is an encouragement to you in your journey and pray like your humble, quiet words, might actually mobilize the angels of heaven. Huh? For your family, for your friends, for this church, because we're God's children. And God always protects his children. He always provides for his children. And he always grows them up in his love and ushers them home. Let's pray. Jesus, we do admit that our prayers... Um, are too small. And that we don't pray like we might actually mobilize heaven on behalf of your people in your kingdom. Teach us to pray like Daniel. Teach us to pray trusting in you, even though we're weak and tired and afraid and exhausted and struggling to follow you in this world, God. Teach our hearts to long for you to trust you, um, and to find our protection in you. Yes, we have enemies. Yes, we can see some. Yes, we can't see others. But in all things, Jesus, you stand as our king, and we are under your wing, and we love you, and we trust you. 
help us pray to you. Amen.